you don't want to get paid as much as possible. You want to get as much as you think you're worth. If you feel like you have to undercut your price, your worth, because you feel like, uh, oh, there will be more money in the future. I mean, that's pers that's a personal opinion then. Like that depends on you if you want to do that. What's going on, everybody? It's Tom and Marlon and Daniel. We're back again with another episode. This week we are uh, we're talking about we're talking about whatever the hell we want to talk about. This is not a book club episode. We're going into some articles, some things, maybe talking about life, maybe talking about you know the mysteries of life. Who knows? We're just going to freestyle it, see what happens there. How's it going, guys? Good. Good. Very, very good. A little bit stressful because we're in the last sprint of a product launch, right? Or at least a product phase. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Lots of things happening. I'm really grateful for Marlon being so responsive to all my questions. <laughs> that really makes the process very quick. Yeah. I'll try to be. I'll try to be. Yeah, you guys have a have a pretty solid workflow on it. Uh it helps in the uh, in crunch time when you have to uh get a lot of things done and there's a lot of communication happening back and forth and I just kind of sit on the sideline watching everything. Uh and it's um you guys are clearly in the trenches right now. But uh I believe in you and I'm here for moral support if nothing else. You have to manage the chaos. <laughs> You're the project manager, Tom. You have to manage the chaos. Yes. Theoretically. You have to communicate my... with the clients. That's true. That's true. I have to tell the clients, yep, everything's uh, everything's going great. <laughs> <laughs> Everything is amazing. <laughs> you have nothing to worry about. That's actually very important. Extremely important. Of course, put put them at ease. Um, so, yeah, we are in the midst of a project, finishing up a, a project, and, and we're going to launch that. And other than that, how 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 are we doing? How's how's everything going in your lives? What's new? Whatever is new from my side is in Slack and Asana. That's <laughs> I was stuff. about to say the same. <laughs> like there's nothing really new this week except for work. Well, there is it's a, just one of those weeks. It's just one of those weeks, right? Plus it's currently super hot here in Berlin. Uh, again. Oh, same here actually. So, these weeks are the worst like if it's hot outside and humid. <laughs> it's tough to concentrate on work. Winter is coming. Winter. Winter is hopefully coming. <laughs> yep. Yeah, we should just talk about the weather this entire yeah. episode. Let's do that. That's super relatable topic. <laughs> it is. The thing is that sometimes you hear like, oh, you have it, it's really hot in one area in the country. And then you hear from other people, oh, yeah, it's pretty cool over here. But now, like at least I have the impression right now that it's, it is hot everywhere. Like it doesn't matter where it's hot everywhere. So everyone kind of suffers from the same thing right now. 
riveting content for this episode. Riveting. <laughs> I think we're I think we're actually just gonna start um yeah, we're just gonna start to have weather episodes where all we talk about is is the the weather in our various locations. Mm-hmm. And um yeah, that's how we're gonna build up our following. It's gonna become the intro of every podcast episode. Yeah, it is. You know, it is a sunny day here in Charleston. It's actually pretty nice. Uh, it has not been hot. I hate humid summers, and it's uh, it's we've had kind of like a cold run. It's been seventies, seventy mm. degrees. But yeah, you know, I uh, I read this article. Switching gears here, um, I read this article from Harvard Business Review. It was a guide to pricing services as a consultant or coach. And uh, I thought it was pretty interesting the different ways that they went into uh, like different models of, of pricing services. And I thought, you know, we could talk about that a little bit uh, because, you know, that's kind of like the basis of how we start relationships with clients is like we, we pretty much work as consultants first and then, you know, enter some sort of long uh long-term agreement and you know one of the things that i think we've talked about at least internally if not on the podcast is this idea of value-based pricing but before i get into that you know a a couple of the different types of of pricing agreements that they talk about in this article is you know obviously there's hourly building that's kind of like the standard right you know you um, have a price you have a rate that you charge per hour and you just calculate, you know, the number of hours that something takes. And um, that's what you charge a client. And then there's also, you know, retainer agreements where you say, you know, like he, there's a certain amount per month that your, um, you know, services are worth. And, um, you know, the, that's just what you charge the client. Pitfalls there can potentially be, you know, the, the client's just going to try and squeeze as much out of you every single month as possible. Um, knowing that they just have a, a fixed price per month, you can kind of productize your services. So you know you estimate how long a a particular service will take, and you almost like turn it more into a product where you know like there's just like a standard uh, for the steps and and what the client's getting out of that, and there's just a standard price as well. And then what I mentioned before is value based pricing. This is something that we talk about a lot and, and, and are still figuring out how to implement um, in our agreements with clients because we do have some productized pricing. You know, it, when we're taking on a new client, when we're in that sort of diagnostic discovery phase, that is essentially productized where it's like, okay, this is going to be, you know, three to five meetings usually, and, and it's going to, you know, be... Uh, $3,500 or, you know, whatever it is, kind of, kind of depends on like feeling out the client and seeing, you know, what they're, uh, what they're, you know, capable of paying, what they're, how big their business is. Um, but yeah, value-based pricing, this idea of asking the client questions like, you know, if you get the ideal result from this project, what is that going to do for your business? How much better are things going to be if this gets done? And having the pricing that you um, recommend to them be based off of that result. Um, I think that's like a a really interesting um, way of pricing things. And obviously, that requires 
uh, you as a consultant to deliver a certain level of results uh, in order for you know that that type of pricing to make sense. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's just like a. I think it's it's a really interesting way of of pricing things, and I'm curious what you guys have to say about that. You mean the specifically pay for for results? Well, there's value based pricing, and then there's also pay for results, right? Which is pay for results is even is even more extreme because, like, value based pricing, you might say, okay, you know, here's here's the ideal outcome of this project, and based on that outcome, you know, we're going to charge a percentage of the, you know, like let's say the client says, well, you know, if we, you know, if we get this let's say, you know, you're working on like a, a digital marketing campaign or something. And the client says, you know, like the ideal outcome would increase our, our, you know, uh, revenue for the year by, you know, I don't know, $50,000. And so you say, well, you know, we'll, what we're willing to do is take a percentage of that uh, increase. You know, that's, that's like value-based pricing, right? Like based on the outcome. Um, whereas the what you mentioned, Marlon, the pay for results, which is similar, that doesn't, you're not, it's pretty much the same thing, but you're not getting paid until the results actually come. So you would say like, all right, you know, based on the results we're anticipating from this digital marketing campaign, we'll take a percentage of that. And so then, you know, once that campaign is executed, you just, you know, would get your share. So they're similar, I think, but a little, a little right. different in that regard. There's a delay in payment, basically. Right. Whereas the value-based pricing, you get your money up front or at least a certain percentage up front. You um, don't get anything up front or in the beginning yeah, until yeah. you re deliver the result, which I think is something you can probably only do if you're further along in your journey as a consultant. I mean, Definitely. you need to have I couldn't imagine applying this to an agency or like a, a creative or a developer. Like they need, they need money, right? Like, especially if you have a team, you you have to pay the team. And if you want to pay them out of your own pocket, pocket, then you need to have a lot of capital up front, right? And I guess, I mean, if you're very confident in your abilities and your process, okay. And if you have that money that you can pay up front, sure. It's substantial if you get, like, imagine like a, doing that as an agency like yeah we don't charge anything until we deliver the the goods right we until we delivered a certain result that we promise you up front which is tough because that's a lot of risk to take on and imagine a process like developing and building a product and then like how much can you actually guarantee without getting the money up front right without being able to have all the resources and paying all the resources yeah, I agree. It's uh, very risky compared to value-based pricing. And I guess, uh, in my opinion, the only way it could actually make sense is if you charge like twice for it, as you know, if you would charge for value-based pricing, like, you know, 10,000, you would charge for result-based pricing of 20,000, because there's just so many elements outside your control that can happen, you know, mm -hmm. starting from the media scandal or whatever. And yeah, from my point, it's just charging more could make sense of it. Yeah. I mean, from all these options, value-based pricing, I, I think is one of the the most talked about 
and more and more talked about options, right? And um, it just makes sense because you're dealing with different kinds of clients probably, like imagining working for a Fortune 500 and then a small mom-pop shop or something. Like the results or the deliverables might be the same in certain spots, but the outcomes for these two different parties are completely different. Working, for example, for Apple and building a website that is connected to a product launch, whereas another website for a sh small shop or company, um, like they, Apple would gain significantly more uh, on that website than a small shop for their website, right? So you have to have a and value-based pricing. You can price it differently, where you get more money for the for the outcome you deliver, right? Um, so I feel that's kind of like more interesting and thinking of like let's say design sprints right we have done it in the past where we have a specific amount of money we charge for design sprints it's kind of the productized service but even that if you really think about it because in the beginning when you listed all these options i was like yeah that makes sense like productized services like a design sprint you can offer that for a flat price to everyone that approaches you it's kind of like you you get what you get a specific deliverable deliverable there uh, but even then, if you think about doing a design sprint for Apple, you would probably charge more than you, if you right. would do a design sprint for like a small shop around the corner, right? Like there should still be a different difference there because you leave so much money on the table. The outcome for the specific company is so much more different in both cases, right? Yeah, it's interesting, and I, you know, it's like each one of the each one of the, the pricing models has its pitfalls. And it seems to me that, you know, depending on what you're offering, it's almost like having a hybrid um, where, you know, I think like, for instance, like the, the pitfall of like value-based pricing or results-based pricing is that one, you're dependent on you and the client agreeing on what the potential value of, the, of that project is. So it would be in the client's best interest to undervalue the what like the outcome of the project is because that would mean that they would pay less, right? And, or it would be in the client's best interest, you know, as far as just like saving money goes, to to say that like the results really aren't that great from it. So it's like you're those models, you're kind of at a, you know, you're you're not on the same team necessarily. Um, but it could be the same thing. It, it could be the same thing with like hourly work, right? Where you know, working at just an hourly rate, the client wants you to work less hours and get more done per hour. And the same thing with retainer, you know, the client wants you to get more things done per month, you know, because they have this fixed price. So it almost seems like, you know, having a, uh, a hybrid of these, and again, it depends on, you know, what types of services you're providing. But you know, something where maybe there is a monthly retainer, and there, there's just a minimum, like level of commitment there from the client, but also there is some sort of value or results-based um, agreement as well, where you know you're you're getting paid. Um, you know what the minimum is that you're getting paid per month, and that you know um, you know allows you to to execute on on whatever the plan is. But then also based on what the results are, based on what the outcomes are, there can be you know additional additional payment there. But yeah, you know it's just like a. It's a it's a puzzle in and of itself figuring out pricing and figuring like what like what you said, Marlon. You know, depending on the client, even if something, even if you have this sort of productized service, you know, even that model could change depending on who you're engaging with. Yeah, like from all these options, I 
I think the the toughest nut to crack to crack is like the retainer agreement, right? Because you have so many things that could happen, you really have to calculate like, okay, how much is my time worth now, like on a ongoing basis, right? And I do agree with you. I think, it, like, is there a way to combine retainer agreements with the value based pricing model, right? Um, where you don't want to always because if you think of it like as a retainer agreement, then you can. How do you calculate that? Like, okay, how many hours per month do I want to spend on this, right? Like, how how many hours am I available to that client? And then you're in an hourly billing again, which you actually don't right. want to do. At least we don't want to do. But we also face the realities of like projects that can reach up to twelve months, right? And every month is a different plan, a different structure. You have meetings in the beginning of the month. You you plan out your sprints and all that stuff. It's like software development, right? And how do you do that? Like on a, how can you do that on an ongoing basis in a value-based pricing model? Right. I mean, I mean, one thing pro you could imagine saying, okay, we have like a twelve-month agreement here. We can like we have a specific outcome at the end of these twelve months, and you base, so you calculate a different or a specific price based on value, and then divide it by twelve. I mean, that is probably the easiest you could do and then you say you don't pay it you don't pay us 50% upfront from the whole amount you pay us monthly amounts so you have that relationship going on like that would be the 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 easiest that i can think of right now but there are probably better ways to do it um yeah yeah i mean that's interesting and i think you know thinking of that the sort of hybrid model like let's say you know there's a small right let's just say there's an uh you know there's like a new gym there's like a uh a, a a gym that's like looking to increase its membership through like uh you know they have like an online they have they have a website where people can sign up and also like you know they want to like build an app that allows their members to you know subscribe to the different types of services that they have you know like they have different classes and things like that and and members can purchase those classes through the app or through their website and as the consultant slash, you know, agency owner, you know, you figure out, you know, what the, you figure out, you know, like what the pricing would be, you, th you figure out what that 12 month game plan would be for, for designing and developing that system mm -hmm. for, for the gym. And like you said, Marlon, yeah, you, you kind of like divide that up into like monthly chunks as well. But then also you think about, okay, what's the potential growth here? And like, what's the value of each one of those new clients for the business? What's like the lifetime value of each new client that they bring on? And so then, you know, you, you calculate what your, what your costs are, what, what it's going to cost for you to engage with this client to build that system out over the next 12 months. And additionally, what is a, a, a fair percentage for you to take of all of those new clients that are coming in through the system as well, right? Like what's the, you know, like, can you, can you start to track that over a monthly basis? And so then, you know, you are getting paid for your services in this sort of retainer-like fashion. And then, you know, you're also on the, the same team as the client now because it's in your best interest for them to be bringing in more business because every time they bring in a new client, you, you have a, a percentage of that. I'm just, I just like totally, you know, I don't know if that makes sense. Yeah. So, so you mean at the beginning of a client engagement, you say you determine a specific value-based pricing and then divide that by 12 unless, or like have that on a monthly agreement or, and then on top of that, you have 
the income that comes with each new client they have in their services that you built or how did you mean that well i would say like the the 12 month the what you calculate is like what it would what like a 12 month retainer would be based off of how like like the pricing for building out that you know cross-platform application or whatever mm -hmm. it looked like you know the website mobile app or whatever and split that up into you know divide that by 12 right and you know obviously it would launch before the end of 12 months you know but you're going to continue to do like some maintenance work on it and things like that and then also on top of that you have an agreement with the client up front where it's like okay i know i know what you guys are interested in because you're a new business or this is a new location or whatever you're interested in growing your business you, what your big goal is to is to you know bring in new members you know bring in new gym members and so like part of the system is like making it really easy for them to be onboarded and to like for them to access your service and purchase classes and things like that so for us to you know be on the same team here to to be incentivized properly um you know having a certain percentage of their gym membership you know application that they submit through this this um you know our our system um having that uh sharing revenue pretty much um as part of that um you know would incentivize us to ensure that you know like this system is totally optimized and you know it's super easy for everyone to to join and become a new member and and um you know purchase any classes like it that type of thing to me it sounds oh, okay. kind of interesting does that make sense yeah that makes sense yep you would also i mean you would only have to think about that you don't want to leave money on the table right because you want to reach a certain value-based pricing model Where you, if you, if we still want to base it on value-based pricing, you still want to reach a number that is based on that upfront, and then on top of it, you want to get a share from their from their income from each member, because then, then it's the same principle based basically as if you would buy stock in that company upfront, and you leave money on the table, and then you say, ah, oh, but we hope that company will be successful, because it's the same principle. You kind of hope the company or the product will be successful enough that there will be new people coming in, which you then share money from or like get a, get a certain percentage from right um so the only thing would be from my point of view like that you ha still have that value-based amount of money up front and then have that in addition to that if you think it's necessary and then how willing are clients to actually engage in that as well right plus again you have to calculate it as well with the product won't be done until maybe like when is the product done to make money right because the first few months or the first two three months is like a lot of wireframing a lot of testing a lot of trying out and then you can slowly put that product out there and then how willing are people actually to to pay in that month four month three for a product that is not really completely finished yet right if it's a 12 months agreement where they, at the end of the 12 month you want to have a full product or something or something in the app store i don't know right something on It really depends on how you structure your planning process and when you think you can make money with that kind of pricing model. Yeah, I mean, I, I would say, you know, like hopefully, for one, like the, I, I would hope that the incentive of having some sort of revenue sharing agreement would be that it would incentivize the team to um, launch, like like have the MVP, you know, launch as soon as possible like pretty much because like 
the the having the the goal of like okay let's get revenue like let's let's get revenue flowing and having the the client and the um the agency be on the same team as far as that goes then the agency is incentivized to build as quickly as possible rather than build as perfectly as possible you know sure um, sure but coming from that could be dangerous coming from the that perspective because you want to have the team working like that up front like in the beginning right away and then putting a financial pressure on the team just because you you feel like the team is more incentivized to build as fast as possible instead of as perfect as possible is kind of dangerous to to go i think like you should have that attitude right away and like if you remember the recent book we read together where like you have to know your value and you price yourself according to that And you don't want to underprice yourself because you feel like um, that motivates us even more to build something as fast as possible. If, if if that is if you if you know what I mean, like I don't know if I understood that correctly what you said, uh, but that's how it sounded to me. Like kind of as an incentive to be faster in the execution, we just cut a cut some money away and like um, say okay, we leave money on the table and like just make it that way. I don't know if that's smart either. Well, you know, I mean, I don't know if like this idea of like leaving money on the table depends on like the time frame, right? Because, you know, if if you're if you're looking to work with a client for a short period of time, like obviously you're going to want to get the most upfront money, right? Like you want to get paid immediately as much as possible. But like if you're looking to build a relationship, that like that's that's what I that's what I think of like if you're looking at building a relationship with a client over a long period of time, then the amount that you're getting paid up front um, versus like what you're getting paid over the next, you know, two, three, four, five years. Like those are two different like time frames, I guess. For sure. No, I totally, totally get that. Like the only, the only point is like, you want to get it. You don't want to get paid as much as possible. You want to get as much as you think you're worth, right? If you feel like you have to undercut your price, your worth, because you feel like uh, oh there will be more money in the future i mean that's pers that's a personal opinion then like that depends on you if you want to do that not everybody wants to do that right like if if you feel like you can make more money later or something or like uh, you cut your value short or your pricing short yeah really that's depends, more right? more like being a founder or part of the founding team like where you right. where you're like you know struggling right. in the first days and then you're you know getting paid afterwards but it is extremely hard to do this for one and you know when there is a client and he is hiring an agency he is risking but you know people can work on the app and, and on the idea while you know having money incoming and you know being motivated to work on it instead of you know kind of starving and hoping for the better times well i think it also depends on like what service you're actually providing and and what the industry is and like what the possibilities are because yeah like if it's a startup obviously it's very risky but like if you're talking about yep. if you're talking about a business like if you're talking about a service that you provide in a specific industry that you know very well and you know what the results are you know you already know what's going to happen generally speaking once you offer that service to the client then it becomes a lot easier for you to incentivize in a way where like you guys are sharing in the results and the outcomes of that project, right? So like if we were to, in that example of like the gym owners, like let's say you've already had experience there and you've already built the system 
you know, like multiple times and it's not this new, it's not this like new engagement, right? Then obviously it would make more sense to like take, you know, less money up front and have like a, a like, because you know that there's going to be like, they're going to, you can, you can estimate how many clients they're going to bring on and you can estimate, you know, like that, what the percentage is that you're going to take of that. Uh, but yeah, it just kind of depends on, on, on a lot of different factors. Yeah. Yep. Case by case basis. Yep. Well, it's also interesting for our case, focusing more and more on app development, how we gonna handle the last phase, right? If, if that first version is really, if there's a market fit for, for apps and then moving on as a business for that app, becoming a startup, right? Because they need their own team at some point as an agency, we cannot provide a continuous service. I mean, the, the manpower is currently not there, right? Like, how is that handled in the end when the app reaches a specific amount of success? And then at some point, there needs to be a team for that startup, right? Maybe there needs to be something that is like a team of people working on it. And is that team then based in, uh, in the agency or is that team, or is it then something the agency comes to with, to the client with and says like, you guys need a team now. Like we can handle the the all the information and put it give it over to the team but like you need to build a team now around this because you can see it is very successful now it becomes successful as a, as a product right so that is something i'm curious about like how we will handle that in the future like when with more and more clients like when they reach that certain success point or that point where they where it makes more sense now to really build like i don't know an office space depending on where they are right with people and how that is handled Right. And, and, you know, if the focus will continue to be on, you know, like, uh, taking on like startup clients, um, because that like, like we're saying, you know, there are a lot of, there are a lot of unknowns there. Like what is, you know, beyond the launch of, of the app beyond, you know, uh, any f sort of funding that they get, you know, like building out their own team versus working with us. You know, there are a lot of things to consider there, um, mm -hmm. versus like working with, established businesses that maybe just don't have their own in-house you know uh technical team um yeah a lot it, it'll be interesting to see how we uh, how we handle those things awesome what else do we want to talk about i guess we can take one more sure let's go daniel you had you had a you had an article you wanted to talk about well I had one. It was hard to find because all of those are shitty. Like the ones that I was seeing on TechCrunch, it's like it's like TMZ of startups. Yeah. <laughs> Just all kinds of stuff about nothing. But I found this uh, interesting one about uh, the anti-competitive behavior that Apple has with its new iOS 13 upgrade. It it basically says that uh, well because of some privacy focused changes uh they they made it so that if an app has to request for always tracking location you have to go to the settings like user has to go to settings and you know allow it through there but the app itself it cannot request for always allowing location that's the new change and that actually impacts us as well uh, for example yeah. for future uh clients and for uh, you know, for the native apps that uh, Apple has, for example, Find Me, you don't really have that uh, thing that, you know, 
you have to go to settings and enable location tracking all the time. They kind of have it in the app itself. So it's quite unfair uh, from, from their standpoint because their apps can allow location tracking from the app. Uh, but, you know, all the developers have to request users to go to settings and stuff. So, for example, my grandma, if I just say go to settings to her, that's like when she is just afraid to do that. Yeah. <laughs> settings is just saying that she'll break set- her phone or yeah. something like that. Exactly. I know so, that for my grandma as well. Right. So, automatically, a percentage of your user uh, base just drops when you mm. can track location, like when user cannot go to settings and enable location. So, and that's- yeah, that's interesting. So you mean like, at, let's say you have an onboarding process for an app and they ask you to activate the location settings. You can only allow it that one time, right? Yeah, like uh, always allow. You can mm-hmm. go to settings and then allow it there. But you cannot like give permissions in the app itself. You have right. to exit yeah, the app. It says, it says in the article, uh, yeah, today many apps ask users upon first launch to give their app the always allow location tracking permission. Uh, in iOS 13, however, Apple has tweaked the ways apps can request location data. So the options are allow once, which allows right. the user to pretty much like see if the app fits their needs before like they actually, you know, give the app full access to their location data. Um, and then the other two options are allow while using the app, which you see a lot, and then don't allow. And the allow always setting will essentially just be only an option if the user, like you said, Daniel, goes to the iOS settings and, and manually enables it. So right. for apps, I, it seems like for apps that have to have that, they're going to have this whole sort of like step-by-step process yeah, where you, know, you, you can't, like at a certain point, the user won't be able to use the app unless they go and manually change that if they really need that much location data. So that is kind of interesting. Yeah, definitely. I have one app, it's called Lifecycle. It basically tells me where I spend my day, like when when I'm at the home, like how much I'm spending going to the grocery store, to mm. the gym, to whatever else. And yeah, I have to have the location enabled for it because it has like, you know, places tagged and it just tracks the location. So yeah, I had to do it in settings. Yeah, there will be a lot of onboarding processes to be changed, and a lot of apps probably now now giving a step by step like guide. Oh, this is how you go to your app, like you do iOS yeah. settings, and this is where you do it, because they have to make sure that every user kind of does that. But is it correct? This only applies to apps that need to have the location enabled while the app is not running, right? Exactly. Yeah. So when mm-hmm. I Tom mentioned like allow while using the app. That means, does that mean that it's only for the current moment that you use the app or is it always when you open the app that the location service is enabled automatically? I think when you're using the app, if allow uh, while using the app, then whenever you're opening right. an app, you can they can track your location. Okay. Wow, right, so. but, it, but is that, so like if the app's running in the background, is that still tracking your location? Right. Is that still while using right. the app? Right. Like, I mean, if not. it's not closed, then yeah, it's right. 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 You know, you're using the app. I think. Okay. Yeah, 
it will track. <laughs> let's see how many like let's see how many right. walkarounds there will be in the in the future, right? <laughs> like people don't close yeah. your app, like keep it open. Keep it yeah, open. Yeah. Or they go through the process of explaining where to set it up in settings. Is there a way to uh, is there a way to open the settings page automatically from an app from a third party developer app on the mm. iPhone? Because good question. That could be interesting where you then put in a button like change your settings here. You click on it and it automatically brings you through the page where you can actually change the privacy settings, right? Or the location. Right. Settings. Kind of like on Mac OS when you install an app and it ha needs some privacy control. Right. That would be interesting. If that's if, because if that's possible, that allows the onboarding process to be a little bit more refined where you don't have to explain where to find it, right? Right. So a whole new ex a whole new challenges approaching now for for designers and developers. Yeah, well it's interesting because like this article, they frame this article as like the you know, this is Apple's like anti-competitive behavior, mm. which is kind of I guess kind of true. Um because like the the article's based off of this letter that was written by a bunch of like tech CEOs and tech um just executives in general, um saying, you know, like hey, this update to iOS 13 is going to be detrimental to our products mm -hmm. and apple's response essentially is you know like any changes any updates that they make to their operating system are in service to the user and to their privacy so like apple's framing it as like this is a privacy thing and they and that's continues to be like big a, a big part of their branding mm -hmm. right like keeping the user's information safe it's kind of what we talked about before with like how like most of tech is about like taking information from the user and and apple has continues to like make this has this positioning whether it's true or not you know that they are all about privacy and keeping users data safe and so and it seems like it's also you know as far as fending off competition goes it's also beneficial for them um so yeah. whether or not it really isn't anti-competitive behavior it's perceived as such And it's also, you know, for them, it positions. Right. Them. It's it's because Apple has apps that have the setting, like they don't have to do uh, the same process as right, right. other apps have. So, right. like, if the apps are on the same ground, it's mm. and uh, competitive, as they say. Right. Right. That's kind of interesting. Well, I mean, like the, the counter argument for any of these other other, you know, the, all of these apps that are complaining that they have to play by these rules now is like. Why don't you start building phones and building operating systems then? You know, like, <laughs> yeah. like the fact that you're dependent upon Apple, like you, you can't really complain about that. You know, like they give you this whole ecosystem for you to build this product and like play, you play by their rules, you know, like I, I, I guess that's how I feel. Yeah. That. Imagine like that's the same thing. Imagine like influencers on Instagram complaining about right. a new feature release or a feature right, that right, was right. taken away. This isn't like, fair. How, this isn't We're not fair. getting how as many likes. Exactly. Yeah. Like, but forgetting about the fact that Instagram is the platform for free that provides them a yeah right. a way to to earn money to share their experiences and everything. Right. Yeah. It's interesting, like coming from that perspective. Plus, you could. Probably Apple could also argue, well, our apps, we know our apps are safe because they come from the Apple e ecosystem, right? So they're not third-party developed apps. We know they're all part of this whole well, system. Well, that, that's kind and of ra racist then. I know, I know. I don't say <laughs> It's like don't we, say we it's can develop right. good apps and, and you can't. <laughs> I, totally, I, totally, I do Did feel like Did you say like that's Apple, racist? 
Yeah, yeah. Like I don't know. Was the, you bring was the race? The no, I know. I think that's actually the the best way of describing it. You heard it here for, first, folks. <laughs> Apple is racist. Uh, <laughs> no, I do feel, but I do feel Apple should play by the same rules. Like, right, although right, right. they offer this, they offer this ecosystem. They, they. I mean, they can do whatever they want, but I think the or right at way least, would be or at least the they rules. have to, like, they have to put their money where their mouth is. Like, hmm. if it ever comes out where, like, Apple, and I don't know, I haven't done any sort of research into this, but like, if Apple really isn't that secure with um, users' data. You know, like if it is something where they're selling data to like third party companies or, you know, doing any any sort of these external big data, um, you know, exchanges like that could. I think that would be that would kind of show that they aren't really that serious about it. Right. Mm. Um, But yeah, yeah, it's interesting. I mean, it's all like it's all like power dynamics, really. It's like if you own the ecosystem you make the rules, right? And like that's that's like the current framework of the internet in general, right? Like Google, Facebook, Apple, Amazon, like all these play all of these centralized powers pretty much can do whatever they want within that that ecosystem that they ha- that they've created. You know, and like anybody that works within that just has to be flexible. And like when the rules change, it's like you just got to you got to change. You got to, you got to, you know, you got to adapt to that. Um, so, you know, I think a lot of people, the hope is that, you know, things like blockchain technology, they, people think of it as this like savior, you know, they think of it as like, okay, finally this, this centralization of power will, uh, you know, that will cease to exist in some ways as like blockchain comes around, but we'll see about that. It's still very, uh, very theoretical. But um, yeah, who knows? Who knows what the future will bring? Yeah, it's dang- It's always dangerous to completely trust a company as massive as Apple or Google or Amazon. Like, in service to the user is just another, maybe not completely 100% just a brand term or brand uh, th- slang, right? But it is definitely up there. Like, Apple is a master in branding since forever, right? And they know how to play it. They have seen a market gap and they took that share from the market. And now they're positioning themselves in like this, oh, we care about our users' data. We want to right. be as secure as possible. We don't share it with anyone else. Like, And they want to position themselves in that way. Yeah, it's interesting. And it makes me think, I want to bring up this point here. So, you know, um, we've obviously mentioned Gary V, Gary Vaynerchuk on here before. And one thing I've heard him talk about um, when it comes to like privacy and and like user data, is he'll say, you know, like it's it's clear, like users don't care about privacy. People don't care about privacy. You know, it's very clear just based on like the way, based on their habits. They they allow these apps, they give them permission to do all these sorts of things. I think that's a really weak argument to make because I think the average user doesn't even really read any of that like they don't really even know what they're giving away they don't know the the value of their data and we've talked about this before with like amazon and everything um it's kind of like to me that argument is like saying you know back in the in the 50s or 60s like uh or 70s you know whenever the cigarette companies whenever we started to realize like cigarettes weren't that great 
for you. And like there was starting to be this like backlash against smoking, right? That would be like making the argument, well, it's clear based on like how people consume cigarettes that they don't care that smoking's bad for them, right? It's like, no, they're just not, they weren't aware of it. They weren't aware of what's go of what they're actually doing, what they're actually participating in. So assuming that like the the user, the average person understands what they're giving away in data and understands how that affects their lives is I, I don't think that's fair. I don't think that's a fair assumption. And um, you know, I, that continues to be like the like big data, you know, like that's just how all these tech companies make so much money. And um, yeah, you know, hope maybe one day that'll change. Mm. Yeah, but we're I mean like as app developers we're kind of we kind of understand there's a lot of money to be made there. <laughs> yeah, the uh, question I, is I, can I, you still make the same amount of money while still educating your users and user base about right. what is implied by giving away their information and being can as transparent in a more ethical as possible. way. Exactly. Yeah. Like how ethical can you be or do you want to be? I guess is the question because everyone can be as ethical as possible, but most of the time that comes with certain transparency they have to show and not and not every big company wants to do that because that reveals actually how they make the money and where the data is going and how they use the data right right i think in the future we'll have some kind of uh, you know electronic passport where we have our privacy data and we just allow certain apps to use it or something like that mm. just that a central location and you would know what everybody knows about you i guess hopefully people start to get paid for that shit you know like like the amount of money that big tech companies make off of user data you know and and we're and you know for facebook for instance you know since the beginning they've been making money off of advertising that was their first uh, source of revenue it continues to be their biggest source of revenue that's based off of what their users look at what they're interested in how they record User, like what users are liking and uh there's not like people just give it away for free you know and and because like i said the, you know they're not aware of it but like should that is clearly valuable that is clearly worth something you know shouldn't users be getting paid if they are willingly accepting that they're giving away or that they are revealing that you know what their interests are to to advertisers it seems like it seems like they should. Yeah, I That's agree. Probably the best business model of all time. Uh, would be interesting to figure out a business model that is really legit in that way, right? That really can sustain itself while also paying out their user base for the information the users are giving them, right? I mean, whoever tr whoever implements that first will win a lot of like supporters. I feel like a lot of people that say, "Yep." That's how that will become the new standard, and then everybody is kind of doing it right. We need just need one company that is really successful at that and can show it works without like going bankrupt or something, right? Like, yeah, when, well, then everybody comes in and says, like, why is uh, why are you not doing the same thing that XYZ is doing? It works. Like, right. Why not doing that? Well, I think the uh, you would have to if that's going to be a model of like your, you know, not your customers are not just. Um, advertisers but like you know you're actually transacting with um users as well as mm -hmm. a business you have to be providing better insights 
than the free user model provides, right? Because if you're just providing the same insights that like Facebook or any of the, these other big um, organizations provides to advertisers, then why would they work with you? Like if you're paying out users, it would have to be more expensive for advertisers to work with you. So like the insights have to be greater. It has to be more valuable for you know the advertiser to have those insights than to have you know something from Facebook or any of these other companies. Yeah. And so hopefully through that agreement with the user, you can actually get them to be having some sort of conscious participation, and you know maybe that would provide better better results. But I don't know. I like I don't know enough about that. Obviously, it would be more expensive for like marketers than you know, to, to have access to these insights, but who knows, man? Yep. Exciting topic. You yep. really feel at work, like how you can visualize it, where your data is going and um, how you can make money and stuff. Could be, could be the future. There's from a privacy perspective, right? Of users and everything. Maybe, maybe there's, will be a blockchain platform that is actually integrating that. And I feel I've heard of some that actually do that or one. Where where you at least are paid out as a user in terms of your engagement with the platform and like right yeah maybe not steam it yeah steam it as well right but maybe not in the sense of, as we are talking about it where you know exactly where your data is going and you can follow the and like you know like transparency is a big big part of that right like who will be right. the first who will be the first that is super transparent about where the data is going who knows yeah who knows. Well, we'll end on a mystery then. <laughs> yeah. On that big Sounds question. Sounds good. All right, guys. Well, we got to get back to work, but I'm glad we could take a, a little bit of time here, talk about some cool things, and uh, hopefully share some insights with the listeners. Thank you guys for listening. Thanks, Marlon and Daniel, for hopping on this Thanks call. Thanks for having us. Till next time. See you later. Bye-bye. Bye bye. Bye.